Uh, Today's text is Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is God's word to us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord, said, the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all of the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, This man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand. And take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God, your word has spoken. Give us faith to believe it. May you... Uh, Do your good work within us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Not sure if you've noticed this or not, but people like to argue. Anything and everything is argued about in our world. For example, I remember uh, a few years ago leaving a Minnesota Twins baseball game in Minneapolis one day and seeing a guy holding a sign for the Flat Earth Society. Maybe some of you have heard of that. At that time, I hadn't heard of the Flat Earth Society. I foolishly assumed that since Ferdinand Magellan circumnavigated the Earth without falling off the edge, that everyone had just accepted the reality that the Earth is a sphere. But boy, was I mistaken. If you spend any time Googling the subject, you'll find out that there are people who are very passionate about this cause. One thing we recognize is that people will argue about everything. Human beings will find a way to argue about anything. But I think there's one exception to that rule. There is one idea about which essentially nobody will argue with you. And that's the idea that this world is a mess. This world is broken. I think you could ask almost essentially any human person if they agree with the the statement that this world is a mess, and I think everybody will agree with you. Our sermon text today chronicles sin entering into God's perfect creation. And this account provides the background and, and the framework by which we can make sense of so much of what we see around us. The story of sin and rebellion against God and the pervasive lie that drives it is a really helpful insight into the issues that we face in our world today. And so as we consider our our text, I want to share with you one central lie, two broken relationships, three curses, and then finally how we see the gospel clearly at humanity's darkest moment. So let's begin with one central lie. Verse 1 of our text says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say? All seems to be well in the garden until the serpent makes his way onto the scene and he asks that fateful question. But of course, his question was not merely a question. It was what we might call a a pregnant question, a question designed to draw out not just a, a response, but to produce something, to bring about something specific. So what was the purpose of this question that the serpent asks? What was he trying to bring about in the woman What was his intended result? Of course, there are a few legitimate ways to think about the events of those first seven or so verses of Genesis chapter 3. Some have pointed to pride, to lust for control as sort of the central motivating factors in the events that would follow. But but I'll argue today that the the matter at the, the very center of the rebellion, the very core of this human rebellion of our first parents was the validity and the truth of God's word. The very first punch that the deceiver throws 
the way of God's creation is not actually an attack on humanity themselves, but on the trustworthiness, on the reliability of God's word. Did God really say? And of course, the question turns into an outright lie in verse 4, when the deceiver says, you will not certainly die. Of course, the, the tempter knows that one sliver of doubt would be enough to forever alter the course of human history. One seed of doubt sown that day that led to destruction for so many. And this mistrust of God's word, the denial of the truth and the authority of the scriptures will, will remain the central issue that humanity continues to battle to this day. All of our problems, all of our social ills can be traced back to a mistrust, to a denial of the word of God. We've seen this play out in society and even in the church. If you want to wreck a congregation or a denomination, the most effective path to do that is through challenging the truth and the authority and the relevance of the scriptures. The tactics that the deceiver uses haven't changed much over the millennia. Because Adam and Eve chose to doubt God's word, chose to assume that God was holding out on them, chose to mistrust God, everything changed. You see, sin is unbelief. All sin at its core is ultimately unbelief. Greed on the surface might seem like a financial sin, but at its core, greed is a denial of what God has said to be true. What he said about money, about his provision. Murder, the most extreme example, might seem like its own specific class of violent sin. But fundamentally, murder is about denying what God has said. What he said about our neighbor having intrinsic value. About our neighbor being made in the image of God. It's, it's denying when God has said that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's about denying when God has said that he alone is in control of matters of life and death. It's saying that we are God, that we determine issues of life and death. Now, it would be, it would be fair to, to pause here, to answer, to address a common objection that we hear in these conversations. And that's the, that's the question of why God would allow Satan, that deceiver, to be in the garden in the first place. And of course, this becomes a little bit of a philosophical discussion, but I think it's maybe most easily understood by thinking about the nature of love. God is love, Scripture says, and so for humanity, who God created in his image to love him, in order for humanity to love God, they must have the ability, the choice, to not love God. Otherwise, it's not love. This is true in human relationships as well. Without the choice to reject uh, another person, without the choice to not love another person, the words, I love you, mean nothing. And so God, in his all-knowing, all-loving wisdom, made it possible for his creation to reject him. And when those words of the serpent were whispered, reject him, they most certainly 
did. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The the central lie that opened the floodgates of sin is doubt and denial that what God has said should be believed and should be trusted. Next, let's look at two broken relationships. Genesis 3 records for us two broken relationships as a result of the first sin that humanity committed. Uh, We see the first of these two broken relationships uh, in verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam and Eve, who previously lived in unity and close relationship with their creator, suddenly hide when they hear his voice. And of course, we've all experienced this reaction, doing something uh, that we know is wrong and then hiding in shame. It's a natural human response, hoping we don't get caught. Uh, The problem with sin is that sin is an infection. It's not just an isolated event. Sin is an infection that that spreads. What started as one denial of God's word spreads and grows. And of course, uh, it's foolish to try to hide from God. But that's what sin does within us. It, It causes us to act foolishly. It perverts our sense of right and wrong. The the relationship is destroyed. And it's this broken relationship that is the the focus and the topic of the rest of the story of Scripture. The the primary theme of the entire Bible from this point forward is is the, the restoration of this brokenness. Think of how Scripture speaks of the outcome of this moment. Romans 5 says that because of this great rebellion, because of my part in this great rebellion, in my natural state left to myself, I am an enemy of God. This separation from God defines humanity to this day. The second broken relationship that we see is is the, the horizontal relationship, and we see it in verse 11. It's the relationship between Adam and Eve. God says, Adam, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And did you hear Adam's response? Right away, he says, this woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Not much has changed over the course of human history, has it? This is human nature in a nutshell. Their sin is Uncovered, and the initial reaction from the very beginning is to shift blame, to point the finger. Here's what we discover about sin sin has worked its way into our DNA. And the sin that we inherit from our first parents produces our own variety of sin. We often in confirmation class talk about two types of sin original sin and actual sin. We are born sinners, and we all sin all on our own. 
And every bit of it further alienates us from God and is an unavoidable cancer in our relationships with others, in our horizontal relationships. One central lie, two broken relationships. Next, let's, let's look at the fallout from sin. It's represented in our, in our passage today with three sets of curses that God pronounces. Now, what does the word cursed mean? It's a word that's shared uh, by almost all of our English translations, and yet I think we, we struggle to understand it a little bit. It, it's not to be thought of as a witch's curse or a magician's spell, but as instead an expression of punishment, of being banished. It's a declaration of judgment. So let's look briefly at each of these three curses. The first is found in verse 14 when God curses the serpent. It says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all of the days of your life. This eating of dust imagery is common in the ancient world to refer to being humiliated, to being forced to to lay face down in the dirt, in the dust. It's a sign of submission to your enemy. I want to jump forward. We'll come back to this first curse, but I want to jump forward now to the second curse that we see, and that's found in verse 16 as God curses Eve. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And this is the point when when all of you ladies are justified in your own cursing of Eve. We see that, that, that there are not only painful biological ramifications for sin, but we also see maybe something more significant that the social order, the social structure is complicated. It's important to recognize that, uh, that, that this verse is a little bit difficult to translate, and you might see different translations handle it differently. Uh, when our translation says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you, uh, most agree that, that it means that uh, the woman will, as it says, desire... Uh, the man, but what isn't clear from the Hebrew uh, is what the intent of that desire is. Some speculate it's a desire, a controlling desire to rule over, to dominate her husband. Others say that it's a good-natured desire that can, on the flip side, lend itself to being dominated, to being controlled. The exact meaning is a little cloudy, but the implication is clear. That part of the curse is a problem, a brokenness in the power dynamics between husbands and wives, men and women. And we see this play out over and over again. And the third curse that we see is, uh, begins in verse 17, when God curses Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread 
till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Not, old, not only is Adam cursed with hard work and weedy soil, but we get the full and final result of sin's curse. The absolute end game of sin, that, that Adam will return to the ground. If you spoke Hebrew, uh, you would know that this is a play on words. The word for ground in our text, the Hebrew word for ground, is the word Adama, which of course is where Adam's name comes from. So the curse is that Adam will work the Adama and return to the Adama from which he came. If you've ever been a part of a church that has a tradition of Ash Wednesday services, the imposition of ashes, when ashes are applied to the forehead, they're often accompanied with the words of this curse. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. The the serpent, the, the woman, the man, the curse of sin is so pervasive that even the ground itself is cursed. We cannot overstate the the despair of this chapter. We dare not turn Genesis chapter 3 into a fairy tale, into a, a cartoon story. The fingers of this moment of rebellion stretch deep into every crevice of our existence, into every uh, nook and cranny of every human heart, every human relationship, every human institution, every family. The implications of this text are profound and devastating. But just when it seems that all is lost, just when everything has been shattered and death and darkness seem to be flooding in, God says something and God does something. Let's look first at what God says And then at what God does. Verse 15, as God pronounces his curse on the serpent, he makes a promise. A promise that was terrifying for the deceiver, but that should cause us to have great hope. Listen to what God says. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. God promises that from the woman would come an offspring or a seed. And this offspring would be the centerpiece of the story from here forward. And this offspring would crush the head of the serpent. This this is what many have referred to throughout the history of the church as the proto-evangelium. Which means the first gospel. This is the first announcement and and promise of good news that we find in the scriptures. In in the darkest hour, in the worst moment in human history, God makes a promise that the enemy will be defeated. But God didn't just speak. He didn't just promise. He also acted. He gave Adam and Eve a taste of that promise. Verse 21 of our text says this, 
The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God sacrificed an animal in the garden that day. Before he, before he, he banished his image bearers from the garden, an animal was, was sacrificed for their sin to cover their shame. God promised and God acted. And that's the gospel. That's the good news right here in Genesis chapter 3 that God promises that one day he would send a child of Eve to defeat the serpent enemy. That one day a true and better sacrifice would be made to cover up sin and shame. That the head crushing, shame covering, death defeating offspring of the woman, very God of very God and yet fashioned out of the dust that he created, that glorious Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, would allow himself to be nailed to another tree. A tree fashioned into a cross by Roman soldiers. And think about this, as his drops of blood fell to the ground and mixed with the dust to which we are destined to return, as he breathed his last breath the deceiving serpent who started this whole mess in the first place found his slimy head pinned to the dust by the heel of the God-man, crushed by the true and better Adam. The, the head-crushing, curse-removing, mankind-rescuing Savior is, is leading a revolution, a, a recreation. His plan in the beginning was focused around that tree, that tree of life. And back to that tree of life will he lead his people. Revelation chapter 22, that glorious final chapter of the redemptive story, drops us back off at the foot of that very tree. And Revelation says the tree yields 12 different kinds of good fruit and its leaves bring healing to the nations. Friends, we are caught up in the middle of this journey back to the tree. But because of that death, because of that tree of death, upon which our Savior died, and because he didn't stay dead but rose to signal the impending death of death itself, all who trust in Jesus Christ are heading back to that tree of life. We feel the pangs of death every day. Some days stronger than others. But, but we know. But we, we know. We, we know because God does not lie. Because his word and his promises are true. We know that death itself is now actually gain. We know that death will be no more. We know that he will not abandon us to the grave. We know that there is waiting for all who believe a place of eternal peace and eternal rest and eternal joy, a garden of sorts with a tree, an eternity in which everything will be very good, just as God designed it to be. The same tempting deceiving serpent who whispered those lies 
to Eve will whisper in your ears as well. Did God really say? And if he can't get you to question the truth of God's word, he might get you to question the depth and the breadth of God's grace to you. He might remind you of your past. He might remind you of those moments of greatest weakness. He might remind you of your season of life that you spent running from him. He will whisper in your ear. On this Reformation Sunday, I will allow the good Dr. Luther to preach to us about the lies that the serpent whispers. Luther wrote to his friend Jerome, who was struggling with assurance, struggling with knowing whether his sin was forgiven. And listen to what Luther says. He says, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to say thus, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means, for I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. And the words of the song we'll sing in just a minute. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. Everything's a mess. But God has promised that this isn't forever. Take heart. Resurrection day approaches. He is making all things new. This is most certainly true. Let's pray. God, we confess today that we are sinners. That we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. By what we've done and by what we have failed to do, we confess and we believe and we know and we feel that sin has worked its way into every part of our lives. We admit that we deserve death and hell. So we're grateful that you sent your son to suffer and to make satisfaction in our place. We thank you that Jesus came not for the righteous, as he said, but for sinners. God, we thank you that your salvation is available for all who will believe, for all who will trust in Christ as their Savior. And Lord, we're so grateful for the promise that you will hold us fast. That you will never let go. Even when we fall and when we fail, that your grip is secure and that we can trust what you have said. So may you leave us today resting in your grace to sinners like us, and at the very same time restless to tell other sinners where they can find this amazing 
grace and hope and peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.